Um, anyway, Luke 22, verse 36 says this, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he, and this is it, he quotes the scripture, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, there, there are two swords here. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, if you missed last week, that isn't going to make a whole lot of sense to you. But we're not going to take time on helping him make sense to you. Just encourage you to go back and read a little bit before that scripture. And it all kind of gels. I just wanted to give that as, as an entrance to where we are today. So Jesus now is, goes to the Mount of Olives to pray. So we look in Luke 22, verse 39. It says, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Now, if we were to go directly to verse 40 of Luke 22, this is where we would be immediately transported to this. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And perhaps many of you are saying, yes, yes, let's go there. Let's go ahead and go there. And this is where I would say my famous word, however... Because there's more stuff here that we find in Matthew, and so we're going to look at those things. Um, what we're going to do is look at some of the places here, and we are reminded in the book of John, and these scriptures, by the way, are listed, the reference to these scriptures are listed on your scripture sheet. You also have the Luke reading today and the Matthew reading today, which is the majority of where we will be. <clears throat> but we are reminded in the book of John that Judas was with them in the upper room, and what his intent was, as they left for the Mount of Olives, John 18.2 says this, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. We learned much earlier that Judas had gone to the Sanhedrin and had said, I will sell out this Jesus that you can no longer find because he is going to the Mount of Olives with all of us, and I can tell him I can tell you where he is and when he is there. So they finish the Last Supper, and Judas leaves the room, and he's heading into Jerusalem or some designated place to, to, uh, to prepare for the, the, him turning Jesus over to him. So what we see, uh, we, uh, we see this taking place. Jesus and the eleven are making their way to Mount Olivet. Judas was already on his way to tell the officials where they could find Jesus, but there is more. We also read that not only was Judas giving them information, he was actively marshalling the forces to arrest him. Look in John 18.3, which is not on your scripture sheet. You can look it up in your Bible. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So this made me ask a question. Who were these soldiers? Were they Roman soldiers? Were they Jewish soldiers? Were they the temple guard? Who was this soldier? Who were this uh, band of soldiers comprised? <clears throat> well, there's a little bit of history that I'd like to share with you. Herod the Great, during his rise to power... Now, Herod the Great um, did not deal much with Jesus himself other than ordering his... Uh, ordering all the babies in Bethlehem two years old or younger to be killed, to be slaughtered. But Herod the Great, when he rose to power, his personal army consisted of Jews, 
as well as bands of foreign mercenaries. Rome also loaned Herod the use of three legions to help him expel the Parthian invaders. Some of you who are familiar with world history, some of this will make sense. <clears throat> if it doesn't, that's okay. But by the time of Jesus' birth, Herod had no Roman troops. He still had a sizable Jewish army, as well as one cohort, which is approximately 600 men, from the Goths, from the Thracians, or the Thracian, and Gallic. Mercenaries from those three regions. Now, Herod continued to use some of the Roman advisors as officers as well. So that made me ask this question, who were the Goths? And no, they didn't, they didn't dress in black and wear chains. The Goths were originally from southern Scandinavia. They were the ancestors of the German people. They were a warlike people who were very aggressive in their pursuit of kingdoms and eventually played a pretty pivotal role in the fall of Rome. They would attack villages and strongholds even though they had no chance of being victorious. They developed a reputation as tenacious and fanatical warriors. If you're in a village and someone said, the Goths are on their way, it would be wise for you just to leave your village. Even if you could defeat them, it was going to be a bloody battle. The, the Goths later became known as Hessians. And several centuries later, the Hessians were hired as mercenaries by the newly formed colonies of the United States to help defeat England. The Revolutionary War. Now, the Thracians, it's modern-day Bulgaria, and as a matter of fact, back then it was even called Bulgaria, they were a thorn in Rome's side and were finally defeated but not obliterated around the 6th century. It was estimated that they had accumulated about 260 tons of gold molded into jewelry and other artifacts and idols. And their religion to some degree included human sacrifices. Most famous Thracian, with which we might be familiar, is Spartacus. He was a Thracian alligator. <laughs> Spell check, gladiator. <laughs> okay, I don't know if we can edit that out of whatever recording, but I sure would appreciate it. I'll give Rich back his time. If Okay. <laughs> hey, okay. He was a Thracian gladiator who was one of the escaped slave leaders who led a major slave uprising against the Roman Republic. The Gallics, which are also known as the Gauls, are the ancestors of modern-day France and Western Europe. They descended from the Celts. <clears throat> now, the Celts tribes only united in times of crisis, such as when Rome threatened their existence. Several tribes located in the same region might also organize into a sort of super tribe. Apart from the individual and super tribes were the Druids. We read a lot about the Druids at Christmas. The Druids, although not much is known about them really, but they seem to have been the priests, the law speakers, the bards, which is an ancient word for entertainers, poets, musicians, and doctors. They also weren't connected to any of the tribes, but were highly respected by them all. So oftentimes, the Druids would be sent out to negotiate peace terms or battle terms with other nations. The Gauls, what they had going for them was they learned how to forge their swords out of iron. 
and then begin to hammer and temper those blades until they were deathly sharp and would not break. So, Herod Antip- Antipasus, yeah, Antipasus was Herod the Great's son, and he was he did a whole lot more when Christ came into the region. He also had his own army, although details are sketchy. His soldiers were likely Jews and these Gentile mercenaries. So, why should we be spending time on these types of things? Well, I think one of the reasons, I think that many of us believe that all the events in the Bible took place in a vacuum. That world history is going on out here, but what Jesus Christ was doing and what God the Father is doing is in this little teapot right here. And no, and we, we were led to believe that the world really shouldn't be interested in what's going on with God anyway because it's irrelevant in their eyes. But it is not irrelevant. In reality, God was moving and continues to move the entire world to accomplish His plan and His purpose for His glory and for our salvation. So Alexander the Great was known by many biblical people. Some of our biblical people probably fought Alexander the Great. And some of what Alexander the Great did affected God's people. But it's only in that context that God wastes any time in mentioning the heroes of the world. Back to our story. In Matthew, we have the following account of what was going on when they left that upper room. And I believe this is on your scripture sheet. Matthew twenty six thirty five. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And Matthew's account says, And the other apostles agreed. They said the same. So we remember this from last week. We studied Christ's response to Peter's statement and the significance of that response. As soon as Peter finished that statement and the other apostles said, yes, we stand with you. Jesus looked at Simon Peter and he said, Peter, you won't even make it through the night before you deny me three times. You do not have what it takes to go to jail for me. You do not have what it takes to die for me right now. But Peter developed that. Matthew 26, verse 36 says, And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now, a little more historical background. There are three areas in the Bible that just stand out as significant areas where a lot of things happen. We're going to talk about two or three things in each one of these areas. Gethsemane. Now, we know he was in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas betrayed him. The garden was near the foot of Mount of, uh, Mount, uh, Mount of Olives, around Olivet. Jesus came here often as he would have passed through Gethsemane to get to Bethany, where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. Very familiar with this. There's an interesting connection between Gethsemane and Jesus' experience here. In Hebrew, the name Gethsemane is comprised of two words, one for press and the other one for oil. It was a place where olive oil was produced. So Gethsemane means oil press. That's how we would say it. And in that ancient process, olives were gathered into tightly woven baskets and pressed three times. 
The husks of the olives remained in the basket and the oil seeped out. And in the story of Jesus' agony in the garden, he also prays three times and his anxiety caused him to sweat blood. The Kidron Valley is between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Kidron Valley is located on the eastern edge of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, King David crossed the Kidron Valley to escape his wicked son Absalom. Full, full of Jewish history here. The Kidron Valley is also where King Asa burned the, um, the pagan idols and Asherah poles and where the evil Athela, Athela it was executed, these names. It became a major cemetery as far back as King Josiah. So this valley is between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives and it is everything including a common cemetery. And David crossed the Kidron Valley multiple times, sometimes when he was fleeing, sometimes when he was victorious. Now, the original Kidron Valley lies about 40 feet above the original. In the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus traveled from Jerusalem to Bethany through the Kidron Valley. Jesus also ruled the foal of a donkey up the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives through the gates of Jerusalem during his triumphal entry. A few days later, after the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley to go pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was ultimately arrested. Gethsemane, very familiar to Jesus. Kidron Valley, you had to go through the Kidron Valley, basically, to get to Mount Olivet. Mount of Olives is prominent in the life of Jesus in that this is where Jesus last taught his apostles prior to his arrest. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And this teaching centered upon the end times and how he was going to return. You find that in the 24th and 25th chapters of Matthew. Fabulous reading. If you're into the end times at all, you need to go there. The Mount of Olives is also where Jesus ascended into heaven after his final instructions to his apostles once he turned, or once he met them again. Acts 9 says this, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in, in, uh, in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? We know the rest of that scripture. This is where Jesus will stand in battle. Zechariah 14, 3 and 4 says this, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. The glory of Jesus will be seen upon the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel eleven twenty one says this, When the cherubim lifted their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the Mount of Olives. That is on the east side of the city. However, on his right, on this night, 
He is in the Mount of Olives, and it's the beginning of the humiliation of Jesus. This is where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have chosen the final chapter of the defeat of sin and death to be carried out as he heads to the cross. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecies of Christ's suffering and death upon a cross. This is where one of his own will betray him with a kiss. This is where Jesus will heal one of those that came to arrest him. And perhaps most stunning of all, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, will fall asleep at the wheel. So how many of you have gone on long trips? Just, you know, these aren't trick questions. How many of you have driven on long trips? How many have you, have you driven when you shouldn't have been driving because you had already reached your maximum and you just kept right on going, right? How many of you have been awakened and you're the one behind the wheel and you're going like this on the turnpike or Route 2 or some other? Yes. We've all fallen asleep at the wheel. And when it comes to this place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And they fell asleep. See, when we're going 70 miles an hour or more, depending on how you drive, and you know you should pull over, and you know you're no longer fit to be behind that two tons of metal going 70 miles an hour when around you are other two tons pieces of metal going 70 miles an hour. And sometimes tractor trailers and all of these things. And I want to present to you, there, there are times in our lives when God says, this is an important time. Are you ready for it? Are you prepared for it? And I would say that most of us are asleep at the wheel much of the time. Jesus pulls them into the garden and he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. I found that fascinating. Does this not make sense to you? It is, not, is it not true that we are the most vulnerable to temptation when we are weak in our flesh? Weak in our mind. When our thoughts are dull and unorganized. Jesus knew this and he said, pray. Because Jesus knew what was coming. And the most he could do was to say, pray. He said that a lot. Verse 41 says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Matthew gives us a little more detail. In Matthew twenty six thirty six says, When Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He knows what was coming. What do you think maybe Jesus was feeling? 
I've wondered that a lot when I've been uh, when I read the scriptures concerning Jesus, especially. We know the story, and so did he. No one else around him knew the story, but Jesus was always preparing. What do you think was going through his mind? Well, the next scripture actually tells us. You might think that he becomes a superhero here, bolsters himself up with prayer, leans into the wind, and walks with confidence. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So here's the picture. As he was escorting his inner circle further into the garden, the place where they were to pray for him, he became what the New American Standard Version says, grieved and distressed. Now, distressed, the word for distressed means to be troubled, great distress or anguish, and depressed. As a matter of fact, it's the strongest of the three Greek words in the New Testament for depression. Can you handle that? Jesus began to feel depressed. This is what Jesus was feeling. This is what Jesus was wrestling with in his heart and mind, in his humanity. And then once they got to this place of prayer, Matthew 38 tells us, then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So the first time we understand that he's depressed, these are his thoughts. He didn't didn't say those out loud to his apostles. Now he brings his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, a little further into the garden, and he expresses this to them. My soul is very sorrowful. Now that's another word, and that means very sad, exceedingly sorrowful, overcome with sorrow so much as to cause one's death. And then going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My goodness, it's so tempting just to stop here and spend three weeks on prayer. There's so much here. Not going to do that. There's so much here. But I want to give you just three observations. They're pretty brief, okay? I want us to look, first of all, at Christ's attitude of prayer. It's in verse 39. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. question is, did Jesus really not know whether God was going to let that cup pass from him? Jesus said, if it be possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Did he not know that God was going to say no? He knew the answer. Then why ask? Why would Jesus ask for something? Just in case it's possible, God, can you remove this from... Have you ever felt that way in your prayers? Philippians 2, 5. Talked about this a little bit. Maybe it was last week. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself into his servanthood and thus made himself vulnerable. So the first thing we learn here is Jesus had to present his request to God so that he would have the opportunity to be obedient. In other words, Jesus had to be denied his request so that he could choose to obey his Father. Why? Well, I believe the answer is found in verses 9 through 11 of Philippians. And this is part of what would bring Jesus his appropriate glory. But let me read that for you. There be, therefore... Paul is writing about Jesus because of his obedience. I put that in, but that's what it means. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Back to Peter, James, and John. Matthew 26, verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, now to whom did he address this? To Peter. Peter, James, and John were there. This is the guy who said, Peter, you're not even going to make it through the night. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, so could you not watch with me one hour? Okay, that tells us how long Jesus was in the garden praying by himself for an hour. Verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. We find out that Jesus was somewhat repetitive in his prayer sometimes. No other way to ask it. And this is a tortuous process, both physically and emotionally. Luke twenty two forty four. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So the first reason I believe that Jesus asked this of his father is it gave him an opportunity to be obedient. The second reason is because it was part of what added to God, to Christ's glory. The third reason says Jesus prayed, cried out. It says, but as you will, this is fine. Your will be done. Your will be done. I believe this is to be a wonderful lesson and one of the purposes of prayer. We are to pray concerning all things so that we might have the privilege of obedience in all things. If I'm struggling in life and discouraged and depressed, and that can happen, and sorrowful, and I do not take these things to God in prayer, then there is no opportunity to be obedient to His will and therefore reap the reward of obedience. The Apostle Paul wrote the following verses while he was distressed and in prison. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I, I again will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, and here it is, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Does this mean that if we do not take what is bothering us in prayer, that although we may get through that trial, we have not been comforted and found and secure in Jesus Christ? I think that's right. You may pass through the difficulty... But if you did not give God the opportunity to hear your prayer and to say yes or no, you afforded yourself no opportunity to be obedient to him so that you could benefit from that which surpasses all understanding, him guarding your heart and your mind in Christ. Was this true for Jesus in the garden? I believe so. Matthew twenty six forty five, And he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. After he prayed that last prayer, something happened to Jesus. He had been strengthened. How do we know that? Because verse 43 tells us that in Luke, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Why did God send the angel? Because Jesus was his son? Maybe. I think he responded to the prayer of Jesus. Moms and dads, aunts and uncles that have some authority over little guys and gals, and you're trying to train them, you're trying to help them understand some things, you know, one of the first things we try to tell our kids is, look, you can't just come up and say, I want. I mean, you can, but you're not going to get it. So what we try to tell them is say, this is what you need to do. May I please? And if we say yes, and we give you that thing, and you don't say thank you, we'll take it back. But I said please, and we say, well, thank you for doing that. It is something that is inherent in the human nature before it was corrupted. And do we not owe God at least that much courtesy? See, as moms and dads, we know what our kids need. And most of the time, we will always do what our kids need anyway. Why? Because they're our kids. And we love them. We're all God's... Well... Believers, we're God's kids. He's taking care of us every moment. But is there not something to be said? When we go to God the Father, and we say, Father, and that, that prayer goes through Jesus Christ, His Son, Father, this is what I request of you. And God may say, no. And then we are obedient. And because of that obedience, we receive peace that surpasses all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds in Jesus Christ. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus did. 
There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. I wonder how many times in response to our prayers, angels have been sent to minister to us. And we're unaware. I suspect many more times than we might imagine, God does not reserve the use of angels only for His Son or heroes of the faith. Hebrews 1.14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Have you received Jesus Christ? You have an angel. Now, I'm not sure He's assigned to you like Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life. That would, my luck, that would be my angel. But I would be a horrible client, by the way. And this is what Paul is saying. Someone was asking about angels. He said, are they not the ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I have news for you. If you are to inherit salvation, you've not yet done it. There's an angel ministering to you. It's amazing. Psalm 34, 6. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. 2 Kings 6.17, And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes. Talking about a comrade of his. Please don't open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What goes on that we cannot see is amazing because of you and me. You know, if it weren't for the salvation of the saints, this would have been wrapped up a long time ago. Psalm 91.11 For he will commend his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Brings us back to Luke 22, verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, meaning exhausted. It says sleeping from sorrow or for sorrow. means exhausted from the emotion of their sorrow. We have to trust the scriptures that they were sorrowful. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And we find ourselves at verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas. One of the twelve was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Just going down in poetry from that time on. The Judas kiss. And this is where we must leave our study for this morning. I have three questions. I wonder what we can take from our study this morning. And I look back at this and I I think about the history that Israel had with so many other nations. Corrupt kings who in times of need allied themselves with pagan nations instead of leaning upon the living God and how those decisions followed them all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Antipas. Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate. We, instead of leaning upon Jesus in dark times, often forge alliances and even addictions with the friends of our flesh and the enemies of our spirit. And in turn, we form a history of these things that follow us all the way to the grave. See, our histories are important. Spoke with a fellow last night, used to be in all my old rock and roll bands when we were very unfamous and struggling. 
And we were just talking, hadn't spoken with him for 20 years probably. So I just called him and we talked. And some of the things, he's, he's now a very strong believer. I'm a believer. Uh, the guy who led me to the Lord, uh, of course, is a believer. And another guy that was in my band, is a belie- he's a pastor, I'm a pastor, and Rick's a pastor. And uh, Randy uh, is a strong believer. And it was a wonderful time of discussion. Uh, and, but a lot of what we shared had very little to do with Christ. Because these things happen later in our lives. And even though we are forgiven our past, folks, it doesn't mean our pasts leave us alone. And it doesn't mean our past still does not form our views. I want to encourage you, if you're just now entering into adulthood in the next few years, and for all of us who are a little on the other side of adulthood, and everything in between, let me say this. What you do, what you read, what you say, who you're with matters. It matters. You'll be amazed how much it matters. So I think, think about the history of Israel. They had so many corrupt kings and allied with so many corrupt nations. And that led them to the garden. Secondly, the other thing that struck me in this study was how Jesus prayed in the garden. He prayed a prayer to which he already knew the answer. You ever prayed those? Why am I doing it? I already know the outcome. How much more important should this be with me and you that we still pray the prayers to which we know the answer? I don't believe it ever occurred to me until this study that one of the most important reasons that we pray is to provide opportunities for us to be obedient. How can you be obedient to someone you've never given the opportunity to say no to you? I'm convinced it's true because until we have, until we take things to God in prayer, He cannot answer that prayer. And thus we cannot respond to Him. We just keep on living within our own wisdom outside of a relationship with God. It's a lonely place. I did it for a few years. Number three, it was after these prayers that God gave the answer to Jesus and ministered to him. And that answer was to minister to him on a personal level. So here's an uncomfortable thought for our flesh. It is not necessarily an answer that God gives us for a particular request that is important. It is the fact that our prayers opens the door for Him to minister to us on a very personal level, even on a broad level. It isn't so much what you are requesting, it is that you went to Him. I may pray because I am in pain. But the fact that God, the God of the universe answers my prayer should be so overwhelming to me in my spirit that my pain no longer is the issue. You may have a personal situation that is terrible. You may be depressed. You may be discouraged. And it isn't so much that when you pray to God to relieve those things, that He will relieve those things. But what is gigantic and ginormous, to quote a particular movie, what is ginormous is that the God of the universe heard your prayer and answers your prayer and remains with you. 
Doctors can alleviate pain. It doesn't mean they're spiritual. I love doctors. I hate pain. That's not the lesson. Philippians 2, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? Heal you? No. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I believe this is what Jesus understood and felt in the garden that night. And so can we. My prayer is this, simply, that for us believers who've been walking with Christ for a while, maybe a long while, that we still understand there are things for us to learn. And prayer is never out of style or out of season. Then the other thing is, if you've not yet received Jesus Christ, this is not making much sense to you. And if it does, it won't later. (laughs) Because it takes the Holy Spirit indwelling you for all of this to become real. And the only way you can receive the Holy Spirit is to receive Jesus Christ. They're not two separate events. When you receive Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you at that moment. And He never leaves. Even if you want Him to go away. No, I see true love. That's not true love. So if you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ... And all of this has intrigued you. And maybe you're thinking, I think that's what I need to do, but I don't know how to do it. It's real simple. It's called repent and receive. Repent means to say, I don't want that over there any longer. I want Jesus. That's repentance. And to receive is a very simple prayer. You just say, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life and my heart. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you're the only Son of God. And I believe you're the only means for me to be saved. And I invite you into my heart. All those words aren't even necessary. It's just that you understand that you need Christ. I receive you now. Lord God, I heard the gospel. I think thousands of times, at least hundreds. And you were so patient with me, Lord, and you are being patient with some in this room today. So, Lord, our prayer is this, that your Holy Spirit will draw them to himself and that they will have the courage and the ability to release this world and just say yes Jesus thank you Jesus that's our prayer and we love you God for it's in Jesus holy and precious name we pray amen if you would like prayer I would love to pray with you don't forget that next week we have the chili cook off thing and it's going to be a blast